Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at the Land and Development Conference as part of our conference series. Our guest today is Peter Sensed. He's the president of Canadian Capital Markets of the National Investment Team at CBRE. He is also a board member of CBRE Canada. He has transacted north of a hundred billion dollars, hundred and ten billion dollars specifically nationally <laughs> and and internationally. He's done a a handful of truly landmark transactions. We welcome you to the podcast, Peter. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, gentlemen. So we always start off with the backstory of how you got into real estate. And this should be particularly interesting given uh, how mm-hmm. far you've gone in that particular vein. And I probably mm-hmm. should disclose now, I started at Collier's myself doing micro transactions. And so you're doing, you're doing macro yeah. transactions. <laughs> so it'll be good to hear the other side of the... Uh, right. Well, <laughs> congratulations on starting there. Great company, Collier's. Yeah, very interesting. So I, when I finished school, I was starting to interview with friends of my father. And we had a lot of different things set up. I was meeting some very interesting people. And this one fellow, Charles St. Thomas, said, Peter, I want you to come and work with me. And I go, okay, what do you do? And he ran the international division, the commercial division of A.E. LePage at the time. And my dad was one of the original guys that helped roll that all up. So I thought, okay, isn't that interesting? Now I think about it and I go, wow, is that interesting? Because that's kind of what I'm doing now, running these capital markets globally for CBRE. So it's, I haven't really deviated that far from the opening day. So, and you talk about micro deals, we started doing really micro deals. What would be the smallest you deal you did in the first year of your- The first uh, deal I did was uh, $890,000. It was an office townhouse complex in Oakville on the highway. The person I was working with at the time said, okay, congratulations, you got that done. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, we should talk about the fees. And I said, okay, well, what, is, what do you mean? He goes, well, it's a 90-10 split. And I go, no, 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 no. I mean, I've been working for you. I owe you something more than that. I'm not comfortable taking 90. And he goes, no, no, the 90 is for me. And it was funny, from, right from then, I thought, you know, I got to make this industry a little bit better. I've got to change it. Because that was just, I, I felt, I was victimized. It was just, it was so raw for me. So I've gone out of the way just to make it better, easier, and more fair for everyone that I deal with in the business. And for everybody not familiar with broker structure, it's typically year one, is 90, 10 to your partner, and then you split with the brokerage, then you split with the government, and the handful of quarters left over, yeah, you get yeah. to go spend however you want. I think so. I must have lived at home till I was 30 or something just to be able to afford that. Maybe yeah. it wasn't quite that long, but it felt like it. So, so how long did you sit uh, in that environment where you weren't, I guess, totally happy with the way things were going? I, I left that year and okay. um, sort of went out on my own. So it was, a, it was a year and a half in research, and I actually left LePage, went over to Coldwell Banker at the time. So that's where it really got started. And getting started in commercial real estate, it's three years in my mind. So you're learning the business. It's like learning a whole new language. Then when you start doing your own thing, it's building your pipeline. And the third year, it starts to pay out. So my salary in the first year when I was doing that research was $18,000. I felt rich. Taxes weren't as crazy back then. And I was- Cost of living wasn't quite as bad bad either, yeah. I was living at home. My mother had packed me lunch. Like when I got these paychecks in, it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't spend. I felt so off the charts wealthy. I thought this is ridiculous. I'm almost embarrassed taking 18,000. Should pay me 12,000. Yeah. <laughs> so the uh, Coldwell Banker as the predecessor to CBRE as uh, we know it today. Right. So Coldwell Banker was the CB side and Richard Ellis was our global play. So that was a big international company started in the 1700s. So big European and Asian conglomerate. So now this is a an entity of 95,000 people. The headline revenues are 
massive $23 billion. The market cap is off the charts. So it's the biggest company of its type by a factor of really two in any way you look at it. So I feel very privileged, very lucky to go to work every day at CB. Yeah, their market presence is extraordinary globally. It's, yeah. uh, and, and that's in almost every country, I suspect, right? Every country. It's probably easier to count yeah. the countries they're not in than yeah. count the countries they are in. Yeah, so we get to speak um, every two weeks, the heads of the capital markets around the world, and the people at the top of the company are seriously smart, seriously committed people that really want to make a difference. So we go out of our way to achieve client goals globally, nationally, and locally. And again, it's just a pleasure to be part of that team. So we've heard about a deal that was under a million, but you're famous for doing deals that are north of a billion. I'd love to hear about a couple of those. I mean, uh, we were speaking before we started recording. You've had a couple that have moved into the multiple billion dollar range. And most people don't have the opportunity to do deals mm-hmm. of that size and magnitude. So I'd love to hear how it's different from your typical process. Or, or maybe the process to take yourself from doing the million dollar deals to the billion dollar deals. Like what well, didn't happen overnight, clearly, no, no, right? No. Uh, what was that journey like? Yeah, yeah. So you, you earn the right every day. And this is part of the culture of CB. If you think about your life, your business, your company as a staircase, there's no top step. Like you never get to the top. Every day we got to take another step. Every day we have to get better. We've got great competitors. The clients are getting better and better and better. So they want more from you. So we're constantly reinvesting. I mean, last year alone, we spent $450 million US on just aggregating data. So we want to be able to mine what we're doing. We want to learn from it. So all of this leads you to a progression where you start with the smaller deals and clients trust you more and more and more. And when they see you putting their interests first, when they really are what you're there for, it's their outcome, you find that they become your best advocates. So I think part of the reason CB's moved in such a direction, not only is the platform growing, but we as a team have been growing and we take it so seriously every day just to make sure that everything that has to happen does happen. And it does lead to these really big deals because these big deals, when you get at, you know, into them, the stakes are so high. If something goes wrong at stake is so much money, you can't afford to take a wrong step. Um, smaller deals, you can tend to pass them around. You can say, okay, it's your turn. It's your turn. When it gets to the big, big deals, you got to go to who you believe are the best. And we try and become better and better every day. So again, with the idea that we've got incredible competitors out there, we try really hard just to be a step ahead. How many, how many competitors or how many participants in that, in that particular market could transact for this, these size of deals? I mean, and, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of small guys that I could do right, it too, right? right, right? right. But, I, mean, I mean, realistically, it's a small number. It's, it's less than a handful. Right. And really what it does, is, it, it, it's, it's you know, a small group of us who are more, it, it, the funny thing is we're kind of friends. Like we end up doing this and I think there's such mutual respect for each other because of what gets put on your shoulders, the responsibilities you carry, what you represent to your company and your clients. We all know how hard it is to make it happen. So it's nice to be collegial with our competitors. Friendly, but also competitive. Absolutely. No question. <laughs> yeah, no they're no still question. competitors. They're not Absolutely. colleagues. Yeah. 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 No, no ifs, ands, or buts. Well, and, and, and you know, I, I always find this, this question a comp, having a, a complicated answer, but what is the difference? Why did they, Why for these major transactions are they, they selecting mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. And, and your team and, and CBRE over, over your competitors? Well, it's um, and I don't say fees because I know that's that's always yeah, no, the, the, I mean, that's, the default. That's, I mean, that's right? the problem for us is, is you know we, we we built this great big machine. It costs a lot to run it, so we we want to have fees going up. And in some cases, people are trying to compress fees down by trying to compete on that side. So that one's you know, a really tough one. And if you're having to compete just on fees, it really doesn't mean I mean, you don't you don't have the team. You haven't built the approach. So if somebody's going to pick you for just money, that's not a great place to be. So really what our governing principles are, it's all about 
the hard work that we're put in. So it's hard work, it's intelligence, but wrapping that all together is the integrity. And I think we work so hard to deliver the most honest outcome, the most straightforward outcome. We've tried to iron out the math. We want to be perfect and fluent in all the math. When we put out what we're doing, people understand that there's not going to be mistakes. You can take our documents and put it forward as a, you know, here's the board submission. You don't have to rewrite it. So again, we even take more time, I think, writing out what we're doing, planning what we're doing. So there's nothing left to chance. There's nothing that we will let go wrong on our side. So that total picture of what we do, and it, it's the everything you do, everything you represent, because it's what are you like at home? What's your spiritual side? It's that whole picture and complete picture that I think we deliver differently. That, I guess instills trust, comfort, you know, gives, yes. the, gives the, your clients that peace of mind. Uh, 100%. If we were to jump into, I guess, a real-world example... The Scotiabank Tower transaction really stuck out in my mind. That mm-hmm. was you know, north of a billion. I think 1.2, if memory serves the correct. Fir- the first time around, yes. Yeah. Can you describe the process of mm-hmm. you know, winning, mm-hmm. winning and closing that deal? So that was um, Andy Lennox, who is a great friend. And I had been staying close to Andy and helping him year after year after year at the bank. And he called up one day and said, okay, everything that you always wanted is about to happen. And I'm like, okay, this has to be Scotia Plaza. He goes, come over and see me. And we went through the whole discussion to set up, and the next meeting was maybe 30 people around a boardroom table. And, and Andy made it clear that this is global headquarters. This is mission critical to the bank. If anything goes wrong here, jobs are on the line. Like that's how it, w- it was a deadly serious conversation. So we got our instructions. We moved forward. The first tour we did was on a Saturday morning at 6 a.m. And Andy said, you know, come in in your street clothes. So we all come in in our street clothes. And he pointed out that I looked really miserable in street clothes. He goes, you, you should actually wear a suit. And I'm like, thanks. Thanks very much. Appreciate that. And that was one where every step of the way you felt like you were representing one of the iconic brands, you know, Scotiabank in Canada. This was, this was so important. We had to help write the best lease. So there was flexibility to sort of, you know, drop space, take space, whatever they needed, we felt responsible for. And it was an awesome responsibility. So that one, every step of the way, you were just on pins and needles making sure that everything was taken care of. And so it sounds like you weren't really in a competitive situation at that point. They already kind of had, had pegged you as the, the, the trusted advisor that they were going to go to for that such an important transaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we'd earned the right to that one before it even came to market. And the actual process itself, was there any hiccups on the way or did it truly go... Uh... As planned. Um, it really went as planned. So that one was quite smooth. And I think the, the really intelligent execution by Tom Hofstetter and Michael Cooper together on that one, you know, Tom Hofstetter came and joined Michael Cooper and he said, look, I can pay you more if you give me a little more term, if you give me, you know, I'll pay you a little more rent. So we restructured on the fly a little bit. So headline number became very important with the bank. They wanted to clear a certain amount of money for certain reasons. We were able to put it together. And when you're dealing with the likes of a Tom Hofstetter and a Michael Cooper, it's very comforting. I mean, they're, they're gentlemen, they're scholars, they execute with incredible precision. So that was, um, I'd like to say autopilot, but in every deal of that kind of size, stuff happens. You know, anytime you're dealing with a building of that kind of height, 68 stories, and you've got granite panels, you're always wondering, you know, what happens if? So we've had a lot of buildings with granite panels where there's been leaks and issues and trying to reclad. Think of the first Canadian place. Mm. When that had to be reclad, that was, I don't know, a hundred million-ish dollars to go and redo that. And that's capital unexpected. So just getting through the conditional period, making sure your asset is okay, that's kind of out of our control. 
we have an understanding that everything's okay, but until you get through that one component part, you know, again, you're, 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 you're butterflies in your stomach. No, how you're do, breathing, how do you your feel? breathing changes. Like it's a, it's a very different rhythm and it's, um, I don't know. It, it's, it's so exciting to be in the epicenter of something that significant to a country because it's not just Canadians paying attention to a global bank headquarters. Like that's the whole world. Every major real estate player knows what's going what on. What was the time frame from the minute you got the first phone call to the, the announcement of the transaction? Uh, they, they typically run five to six months is, is our total cycle. And a lot of it just comes down to the initial prep work. So how much has the client done? And the more they've done, just you can compress part of that 30-day window. You know, and typically they don't go to seven months unless there's a problem. It's literally the same time frame as a $10 million transaction. If you reality. really do your job right, and we try and do so much work up front, part of what we do is just try and come up with that you know, future-proofing your deal just so that every step of the way you've thought about it, you've gone through it. You know, And again, part of what we've done is to change the underwriting of the whole industry, just making sure it's understood, it's simplified, it's not just back of the napkin, it's heavy math done correctly in a way that everybody can appreciate it. So that was 1.2 billion and change, I think. And what was the, what's the largest? Was there one larger than that? Or? Well, we, um, we created the deal for Blackstone to come to Canada for pure industrial. So that was 3.8 billion. So that was another incredible deal. Over a number of assets though. That was a whole company. Yeah. So it was a public to private deal. And so we created that. We started it. Others were brought in as we went through. So the investment banking piece and while we've got an investment banking business in New York, it was easier to work with our friends that I mentioned earlier in this podcast. And they came in, they were part of the deal. We've got another one that's almost 2x that going on right now. So, the, I mean, Canada's had this maturation where we're still only 2% of the global REIT index, but we become more and more important every day. The big Canadian pension funds that we all know, the CPPs, the Oxfords, the Cadillacs, the Ivanhoe's, they're out and they're constantly doing things around the world and they're making us all proud. The way they execute is flawless. They're great. The checks they can write are different than most. So again, they're doing things, putting our flag around the world in a very good way. So when we find the global capital coming into Canada and we've done virtually all the German capital that's come in over the years, we've introduced that. The two big Chinese deals that happened as Mark, we've done that. Blackstone, we've introduced them. So when it comes to these big market-leading transactions, that capital tends to come to us first just to do the reconnaissance, understand what's going on, and get the lay of Canada. Is that partly due to the, the global presence of CBRE? And the reputation we've built. So, so they're yes. coming in yeah, under... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and there's an expectation. If, if outbound, we've, we've set that reputation. Now you've got a reputation to uphold when they're coming inbound. 100%. 100%. And you know what? It's, it's the biggest cut against Canada... You know, in the real estate sort of context, is it's a closed game. It only, real estate only trades from one Canadian to another, but it's changing. As the big of the big diversify, go global, and we help them with their goals around the world, that opens up opportunities to these global players to say, oh, I can get into Canada now. I like it right now. But we all know we're long in this cycle, so it's, a, it's an exciting time. Is there a distinction that, you, that kind of stands out between the way that those foreign capital approach you know, transactions in, in the Canadian marketplace, maybe not Chinese, because I know that's the different mm-hmm. different beast altogether, but maybe some European or, or other Asian Asian capital that you've seen come in and just the yeah. way that they approach, yep. the, they approach real estate and the market yep. versus the way that mm-hmm. our, our sort of inbred, our Canadian, our Canadian capital approaches it. So let's say the three of us get on a plane and we go find a, a deal in Hong Kong. 
Sure. Okay. You're starting from ground zero. Now you got to figure out all the different component parts, who's doing what. It just takes longer. When you're starting in a foreign geography, you've got to do tax, you've got to do structure, you've got to figure out who's who, there's politics. Yeah. So it's the, the biggest challenge they have coming here is when we say we might see a firm bid or a 30-day conditional period, they're like, how do we compete? And it always looks like it's an inside kind of game when people can really condense timeframes. So that would be the biggest thing. Generally, we're used to the Canadian pension fund execution and the institutional approach where it's just capital's ready, it's available, let's go. The rules are understood. So we find we're in sync a lot quicker. So we're, we're here to help the global players come in. We've done a lot of these deals. We'd have a very significant transaction at this time under contract, hopefully firm next week for a major, major opportunity in this country. And you know, we're almost a concierge to this capital to help with everything that they need to do on a specific deal. Because if we pick one of them and they don't deliver, that's not good. And what's that capital looking for in Canada? It's really what, what it, the Canadian going out or the global coming in, it's all about diversification. So you can be over allocated to your home country or an asset class. So this is something where Canada looks safe. Rule of law is great. We're almost a hedge on the U.S., we're so close. We've got a lot of similarities. There's maybe a little more yield. Sometimes there's a little less yield. So it can be yield sensitive. But again, mostly it's about open, free, rule of law, rules that you know, let you uh, diversify your portfolio nicely. And how does the yield here compare to the other markets that you've uh, taken a look at? It, it, you know, so it's, it's very funny. Right now, major retail, for example, would trade at a lower return in Canada than elsewhere. And people ask why. A big part of it is there's less retail here per square foot. So people feel safer. But when you say to somebody, okay, I've got this major opportunity it's, um, and it's a 4% return, they kind of go, what? Yeah, I can buy that globally at five, five and a half. And I said, well, let me tell you why Canada is better, why you should be doing this. So it takes a little bit of education to get people comfortable with it. Our core office deals are trading very similar to New York and London at this time. Now, London's got Brexit. New York's got some you know, issues with uh, residential vacancy, retail vacancy. So again, when you've got the lowest vacancy in office and industrial multifamily really here, Toronto, Vancouver, for all of North America, people are paying attention. Throw in this Canadian dollar. And I think it's, it's just such a crutch. It's a weakness that we have to have such a weak dollar to compete with. At the end of the day, I see it as a wealth tax. So everything that we import, everything that you do, like your, your suit, et cetera, is probably coming in in USD, Try and think about your retirement when you've got this weaker dollar than it should be. So anyway, it does help the return. So people might play a, you know, a bit of a dollar sensitive kind of approach to the investment as well. So I think, you know, going forward, we will see more and more global capital, even though you're seeing some of the Asian capital being pulled out of the market. Is there a particular, particular jurisdiction, a particular country you think that that capital is going to come from? You mentioned Germany. I mean, I mean, Achilles, I mean at least in the multifamily space, really made a huge splash yep. buying things yep. at, at cap rates that were 100 basis points less than what the market was at the time. But they clearly, yep. They, yep. they've showed to be, you know, pretty, pretty astute in that, in that observation. Of course, there's a lot of you know Asian money, Chinese money coming in. Anywhere else that you think is kind of yeah. like I don't see, I don't hear a lot of Australian pension funds mm-hmm. buying up capital here, or you know, you know, Italian or whatever. Right, I mean, right, you tell right. me the, the, the pension funds just aren't designed the same way. They're not as big. They're not as sophisticated. One of the keys to the Canadian funds is they're actually prepared to pay a global you know compensation package that's competitive with anyone. So you actually do well working at the Canadian funds. So that's the first and foremost point. 
the tip of the spear right now would probably be the Korean capital. We're seeing a lot of Koreans now just saying, okay, let's look at Canada. Let's see what's going on. CIBC Square, the capital in that really behind the scenes is Korean. So there's a lot of sort of quiet money that's in the circulation right now for this country. The open-ended funds of Germany like to be here. Blackstone's the most active and aggressive investor in the world being U.S. They're all over Canada this time. So they just took our Bentall Center deal. So we've helped them in a lot of big deals right now. So they're through $5 billion comfortably. So that's, that's a, a very short period of time, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Very, so, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so they move a lot of money in a very efficient way. Very sharp, very good people. And that pace is going to continue with them? And you're- At some point, you'll hit some kind of you know, threshold. So it'll be a percentage of what they've got you know, to invest. How much are you prepared to put in Canada? They'll never give you a stated number. But for a good deal, I think you can count on them. If you were to take your own dollars international, where would you, where would you take them? You know, I, I really like Canada. Like, I, I think Canada's a great bet. I just think it's one where you got to be really comfortable with all the knowledge you have, the understanding you have, the way we can structure things is here. It's great. But I love London. London right now with Brexit, we're seeing some cracks. We're seeing some opportunities. So some of the core smaller deals, hard to say no to that. I think that if you took a position in London today, you'd be thrilled 25 years from now. And you got to take that kind of you know, longer view right now in my mind. Even though the real estate there is obviously priced in a, just a, a pure dollar value considerably higher than here. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like if you're a billionaire around the world, you're going to allocate some of your money to London real estate. It, it's as simple as that. So a lot of money will continue to flow. Even with this whole Brexit situation, London is London. People will be there. Everybody loves the environment. So yeah, it'll be dented, but not ruined. And in a more uh, national scope, um, you always hear about Toronto and Vancouver getting the bulk of the international attention. Are you seeing any of the other major markets in Canada Mm -hmm. attracting that international capital? It's tricky. The big deal we're doing right now is, you know, outside of those two cities. So it's, it's fabulous to see that kind of excitement. And if you wanted to buy something that's new, nice term covenant, and you can talk about something well into the fives, you kind of go, whoa. On a, on a global basis, that might be a four elsewhere. And if you get 200 basis points to go to some of these markets, if everything lines up, then you might be prepared to do it. Uh, Montreal is a darling right now. A lot of capital flowing to Montreal. I almost feel like Montreal, it's at the end of that growth though, right? Like if you were in there three years ago, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd hit the jackpot, but it seems to have gotten much more expensive very yeah, rapidly. No question. But I think it's got even more room to run because it hasn't accelerated quite the same way as Vancouver and Toronto. Dory Siegel said something funny to me just when we were doing that interview. Before we got started, he goes, you know, people were laughing going, you know, why are you moving to Montreal when he first came to Canada? He goes to Montreal, he goes, you know, it's a, it's a little bit rough and it's a little bit tough and it's, you know, the French situation going on. He goes, oh my God, I've just come from Israel. Like, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff going on here. This here, Montreal, this is not difficult. This is not dangerous. Opportunistic. Yes. Back to the career path, and, and maybe you know this will lead us to a discussions about other transactions. What are you most proud of? You know, looking back over the mm-hmm. years and all the different things that you've kind of been a part of. Not necessarily the the largest commission check, just the yeah. uh, you know, a personal, <laughs> that can be personal it, I guess. emotional connection. To yeah. yeah, the money's really not it. Like it, it's not the driver in any way. I feel very privileged when I look at all the different people I've had a privilege of working with. So whether it's on the client side, whether it's on the partnering side, there's, I've said there's been some seriously smart people at CB. So I think about, you know, Blake Hutchison, Kevin Leon, Michael Turner, you know, Sharon Powell. There's been a lot of really, really great people. The existing team that I have the privilege of working with, 
with Matt and Casey and Hillel and Jason. It's, you know, I love it. Now we've got this next generation coming through with Werner Dietl as our new CEO. So Werner and I kind of grew up in the business together. So seeing somebody like that who understands the business from the trenches, running a company like ours, we normally don't have that. It's thrilling to see. So, you know, and, and, and day to day, I get to sit with the brightest minds. I get to help them execute their plans. Many times I feel like I'm head of HR for them. We're, we're looking at hiring. We're doing a variety of different things. That to me is incredibly exciting. And then when you launch into some of these bigger deals, and we're just as happy to do, if it's for the right client, you know, a $15 million deal, we'll do it. Our average deal size is $70 million. So it's not as big as people think, but you, you, do, you do recognize those lightning strikes when they come at a billion. They're outliers. They're outliers. They really are. On the same vein, I've just got to, I've got to ask, what, what's the worst part? What's the worst time? What's the hardest moment of your career, the most challenging period? Well, I started uh, in the late 80s. So I remember, so I was, I was at LePage, and the, the hot car back then was the Porsche 944, and everybody seemed to have one. And by 1991, I remember watching these cars getting towed out. The business was being obliterated. By 1992, most of the developers were done. A lot of the senior brokerage people were done. That's what gave me the chance to get started at a higher level. You know, it was interesting. First year, three years when I was in the business, I didn't take a holiday. I did 28 night school courses. I thought I was technically more advanced than most people because of the commitment I made to the business getting going. You learn a very valuable lesson when you see other people blow up the way they did in the 90s. And people, when they were blowing up and they were in their 60s, I just remember thinking, oh my God, how is this person ever going to come back? How do you make your money? How do you ever retire? What do you do for your family? So it helps you lead a little bit more of a conservative life when you're trying to just sort of protect on the downside so your family will be okay no matter what happens because this is a cyclical business. It's been a long cycle though. Yeah. Well, we have this conversation regularly at the podcast about how a lot of, you know, even executives now higher up in companies that have never seen a downturn right? That, that don't know what the pain can be. And, you know, actually Dory mentioned it during the, the, uh, the interview you just did with him about when interest rates were five and they go to four and a half, they're at four and a half, they go to four. Yeah. They can make some mistakes that you made just kind of go away. You don't even know you made that mistake because you've got these back, these this sort of these, these, this push from behind that you don't even realize is mm-hmm. there. So that's, it's, I was curious to see what's going to happen when and if there is a cycle, if there is a, mm-hmm. a downturn. You always hear about guys who had to go through that uh, crash in the early 90s, stay alive to, to 95. So what did you do to stay alive to 95 and get back into the, uh, the good times? Yeah, lived at home. I mean, I, I was a young guy at the time, so it was, uh, it was very easy. And it was a great learning period because I didn't have the pressure. And the people that tend to do well in our business are the ones that don't have that initial pressure. So again, you've got that three-year runway just to get yourself started. If you can be financially independent through that period, that's the start that you really want. If you're if you're a, a listener regular of, of the podcast, you'll you'll remember the the Kevin Leon episode where he talks exactly about this moment in time about how you and him were kind of partnered together and oh. and just the way that you kind of had this ramp of just growth because there wasn't a lot of other people in that in that industry. And really, kind of he's he kind of said I, I'll paraphrase, but it kind of kickstarted a lot of what you know the tr- the trends of his career because of that time yeah. that time working with you. Yeah. Well, our first big deal was the exchange tower. And I mean, there were were sleepless nights for Kevin and I. So we suddenly have this downtown bank tower and we're looking at this and we're representing all the note holders. So the Royal Bank, it was uh, Canada Trust, CIBC. And wow, that was was one that kept you up at night for sure. Blake Hutchison was a part of that one. So 
really, with, with the collective wisdom, we were able to put it all together. We were able to make it happen. And that really was the start. And our business was all about taking care of the banks. They were the big players at the time. Yeah, we had Matthew Smith on a number of, well, actually, a number of years ago now. And he said he entered his career at that time. And he thought all you did was bank workouts. There was no <laughs> other business to even do. It's, uh, it felt yeah. like that for a long time. So when did you, when, uh, during that time, when did you find that the market really picked back up again? When did things uh, put a smile on your face? Later in the 90s, you started to see, uh, you know, things starting to rejuvenate. All of a sudden, you, you remember back to the, the REITs were like these phoenixes rising out of the ashes. So you started to see the formation of capital. You started to see more sophisticated players forming. In the mid-90s, we did 145 King, and that was one of the darker times where buildings were 35, 40% vacant. It was, you know, rents were negative, and you never thought they would come back. Compared to that, even 96, 97, 98 felt relatively good. But in you know, 1993, I clearly remember if you had an offer for a building, you couldn't believe it. Oh my gosh, I've got an offer. You'd be ringing bells and celebrating. <laughs> it was very different. I think what real estate means as an asset class today, just as you want to fast forward here, it's something where the total return is greater in my mind than a lot of other asset classes. The predictability has become a lot better. So once upon a time, the variability of returns was greater. But with the teams, with the governance, with the sophistication that's wrapped into the bigger play, like, like a CPP is not going to go make a mistake at Oxford, a Cadillac. They're not going to go and willingly and knowingly make a mistake. So I think it's a much more predictable industry at this time. So I think even when we get into whatever the cycle changes, it's going to be a much more limited downside than what we had before because people just weren't capitalized in the right kind of way to survive a downturn, let alone one that we saw from 90 through 94. To jump back, uh, I guess, to more profitable times more recently. So the guys that bought in 93 obviously did very well. Where are people making money now? It's really rolling rents. And if the you got to be a student of the game today, so you have to really understand what's driving everything behind the scenes. So whether you look at industrial, multifamily, office, Canada's changing. We've got a lot of people wanting to come here. There's some seriously smart people moving to this country. A lot of the tech companies are realizing it. They're coming in. It's harder to get into the U.S. So when we have these kind of conversations with Blackstone, Blackstone will say, you know what, you, you just don't realize what you've got here, Peter, because this open door policy for people, we're following that. That's one of the reasons they're there. If you look at our rents now, when industrial rents burst through $9, $10, getting into 11 when rents for residential are doing what they're doing, office rents, I mean, we've never seen anything like this. So now the question becomes, can this keep going? Do you make your bet now? In certain cases, the answer is absolutely yes. In some, there's a little bit of flashing light on the dashboard. You've got to pay attention to that. And some, it's clearly red. Be careful. Don't go there. And do you invest your own money into real estate? I have the privilege of getting into deals. And, um, you know, I like to be with people I know, the people I like, the people I trust. And those are the ones where... Yeah, when I go for my own diversification, that's when things don't always go as well. When I have the privilege of investing with people, again, that I know, like, and trust, it tends to go very well. Can you share what asset class you prefer of the uh, four major food groups? I'm a big believer in multifamily and industrial. I think you have to play the momentum curve right now. It's so strong. It's not going to change in the next while. So if I have the privilege of being an industrial deal or a rental, multifamily rental deal, I would sign up right now with very few questions. I think you and most other most other real estate investors in the country these days. 
we kind of tiptoed around it, but you know, the culture that you foster within your team, within CBRE, and attracting talent, growing talent. Can you just kind of speak to what your kind of philosophy is, sure. and and maybe how it's changed over time? I mean, you've been at this for a long mm-hmm. time, and the way you approached it 15, 20 years ago to the way you approach it today, yep. I'm sure yep. is very different. Yep, yep, yep. I would. The version 1.0 was sheer horsepower. It was pedal to the metal. It was never stop. It was don't lift your head. It was just go, go, go. And I think that at the time was very different. People just weren't prepared to do that. And it got a lot of attention in the industry. Now it's much more refined. This is now about investing in other people. It's about growing talent. One of the things I'm most proud of is developing raw talent, making, you know, helping people understand what's really important at any given time in a deal cycle or any time in somebody's career what matters, what should they pay attention to, and just having that sort of little bit of an eyes-up approach versus the eyes-down approach. And when we can go through and really say we're fully invested in a situation or a person or their future, they feel it, they want to be a part of it. And if you think about the graduates, when you think about the people that are at CB, most of my partners now are through 10 years, some are through 15 years. All the partners I've had when you mentioned you know, Kevin or a Michael Turner or a Blake. I mean, these are all like 10 year plus relationships because we took care of each other. Like you really went to the wall for each other. And it's, it's different in this business. You can make it about yourself and that's where it doesn't work. So you've got to make it about everyone else. And if you're really prepared to put yourself at the bottom, it works. So for me, it's all about client first, then it's the company, then it's the team. And then somewhere way below that is me. So in that kind of order, people feel their interest first, which matters. So Peter, before we wrap up here, uh, the last question I've got for you is, you know, you've done a ton through your career, you know, some, some great milestones that we've touched on here and fostered multiple teams and made some great relationships. Well, you know, where do you go next? What's the, I mean, you're, you're a young guy still, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've, you've, got, you've got, I'm sure, a long horizon still to go. So where do you kind of see yourself? Where, where do you want to go? Maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe is the best question. So I have to start this one from my kids. Are, I've got a 13-year-old and two that are turning 15. I've got twins. I think I'm on the Freedom 88 plan. So I, got, I, I think I'm around for a long time. I feel really privileged, again, to be you know, sitting in the desk I do at CB. It's, it's, I think it's one of the best desks in all of the real estate industry. So I'm very thankful. And again, I'm very thankful to have the people I have around me. So I'm very fortunate to be working with such great, great people. So I don't know. It's one where... We talked about investing, so I like to be able to do some more investing where it's not a conflict. We just make sure we're doing the right things for our family, make sure that some of that's going on. As this world shrinks, the thing that I find interesting is you get a lot of calls from other parts of the world saying, what about this? What about that? How would this work? What would that mean? Could you do this? I don't know. I mean, it's something where we're at the epicenter of all these major deals. It's hard to have something better I really, Sunday nights are my big planning nights. I go through and I get everything set for the week. And I sit back and I just, whoa. Like that's a lot of really big, really interesting stuff with some of the most significant Canadians. So I don't know, nothing jumps to mind that this would be better or if I went there. And and so here's another analogy. When you own a business, when do you decide to sell it? If you can't become the number one group, if you can't see growth, you might as well sell that business, create something else, 
when you've got something that competes really hard, so like the New York Yankees even, like in a sports analogy, when you've got something that's really at the top, that's where it's hard to let it go. And then your big task is to keep it going, keep it growing. Make sure you're attracting better people. And the resumes I'm seeing, the people we're seeing come in today to want to be a part of this, it's a magnet for incredible talent. So I don't know. My, my goal right now is just to every day make it better for our clients, make it better for our employees, just make it somewhere where you really want to be. And we used to be relentless and work around the clock all the time. Now, as you mature, now that you've got families, we're much more reasonable in the work hours. Now, you know, it doesn't mean we don't work hard because we have a lot of late, late nights. But, you know, I think we're a much more humanistic environment that's great to be a part of, hence why all these great people are joining. So, so you keep going is the answer. Just keep going. You're already, you know, like you put it, you know, the biggest and the baddest. So why, why bother changing that, right? Yeah, so, well, you know, I just, I just think I'm very lucky to work at CB. I'm yeah. lucky to work with all these great people and I've had a luck, lot of lucky breaks. So I don't know. I just feel really good you know, where I am with what I'm doing. Is there a $10 billion deal out there somewhere just waiting for you to sink your teeth and do it? Yeah, yeah, it's coming. <laughs> I'm sure it's coming. Inflation <laughs> makes it all. So we sold this convention center once upon a time to Oxford. And that, this was owned by the federal government. This today, all built out, all done, is, is going to be something, you know, off the scale. So, you know, as, as the capital gets more sophisticated, gets bigger, you know there's going to be something. There'll be some corporate platform scenario that will be in that kind of zone that I would hope we're a part of uh, before too, too, too long. We'd love to have you back on when you, when you do that deal and hear all about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, right. Peter, we want to thank you for coming on today. Thanks for it's your time. It's been a time. real pleasure. Yeah, this is a great, uh, great perspective on the market that you know a lot of people can't really comment on who aren't sitting at that point. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And you know, we go through a lot of these kind of things. Your questions have been so good. So you know, this has just been something where a lot of times I have to work a little harder. Thank you for what you've uh, just done today. Uh, you're welcome, thank I you. think. <laughs> and, and a compliment. I like yeah. it. Yeah. We want to thank uh, we want to thank First National as our sponsor. We want to thank the Land and Development Conference for having us here today. And uh, again, we'll thank our guest. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.